Yes, hello again, and welcome back to the None But The Brave podcast. I am Hal Schwartz, and as always, I'm here with my great buddy, Flynn McLean. Flynn, there's been a lot of stuff going on in the country. I don't know if we want to focus too much on that here on the show. We we okay. talk Bruce. We talk Bruce. Bruce is our respite from uh, from all the craziness going on in the world. So let's let's talk about him and his music. Yes, and there is plenty of craziness going on, unfortunately. But as far as Bruce is concerned, he did deliver us a new archive this morning. Yes, St. Paul 2012. It's one of these shows that does kind of sneak up on you. Looking at the, it has a cool set list, and you you wouldn't think that such a cool show would come, you know, from the middle of a tour in the, you know, in the Midwest. I mean, you know, there's my Northeast bias showing through. I'll be honest. Um, but they, it's such a hell of a show. We were listening to it before we came on the air just now, and it's like, damn, this is every song was was hot and damn good show. And it's a good mix, too. Al Chiller did a good job here. The jet, I thought the drums sound really good. Oh, uh, you know, it's funny because I didn't I didn't like the way the drums sounded on the beginning of We Take Care of Our Own. I thought they they didn't sound bassy enough. I wanted. Oh, really? There. Yeah. I got to listen <laughs> to that again then. Yeah. But otherwise, yeah, I thought everything sounded great. I mean, Devils and Dust. That's that's I mean, that's the set list jewel in there. Yeah. And it was yeah. only played twice. I was lucky enough to see it the second time in Oakland and a very effective full band arrangement. As we always say, and you, and you do wonder about these things, they obviously spent quite a bit of time working it up. Why wasn't it played more? I mean, it's it's a treat that we do have it here. Tremendous guitar solo, especially at the end. There's two in the song. Yeah. And I really like Kurt Rahm's uh, trumpet on, on the song. I think that adds just um, a mournful Almost like an, I don't want to say eulogy, but kind of a very sad, yeah, tap-esque right. sound to it, which gives it which gives it resonance, obviously, based on, on, the, on the topic. It's very similar to what they did on the wall a couple of years later. Oh, yes. That's, that's a very good, that's, a very, that's an excellent comparison. And yeah. it's, it's interesting about the Wrecking Ball tour is that I think just about every, every show on that tour had some little... At least one little cool setlist nugget that would make it that would that makes it worthwhile of release. Obviously, on this one, Devils and Dust, but you also have Stolen Car, Something in the Night, Loose Ends, and but and there are so many other shows that that, that have something similar. And you know, if there's any tour that I want to see retroactively release in its entirety, this this is the one. Well, the interesting thing is there are two shows from this tour that I think are widely regarded as two of the best shows from the last decade. The Second Night in Paris, which I was at, and which was truly the best show I saw from anyone in, in the last decade. And also Fenway Night 2, which I wasn't at and you weren't at, but we've heard from a lot of people that we know and respect that that was probably the best U.S. stadium show that's ever been played. And neither of those shows have been released yet. And there are a lot of other worthy choices you know, the show after St. Paul, you and I discussed previously on another episode. Well, it was in Nebraska, Omaha, right? Right. Yeah, uh, where he did a large chunk of the Nebraska record. I mean, to me, that would have been my pick from November, but you can't argue with this one. As I said, there's, almost, there's something from almost every show, and there's it's difficult to, to argue with, with particulars, unless, of course, they released, you know, the first night at Fenway 2012. Um you know, in which case there was there was such a such a big difference between the first night and second night that year. 
I think that, you know, hopefully they're going to rotate through some more of these shows. Of course, some people are going to be saying to us, well, we don't want a million shows from the Wrecking Ball tour. And I get that. And at a certain point, as we know, they're going to have less inventory to release from the classic <laughs> era. But there's, you know, they should get to these shows. There's, as yes. as I said, there's Paris, there's Fenway, there's Omaha. People were talking about Anaheim today. I was there. That was a really hot show. There were shows from 2013. So mm -hmm. they've got a lot to work with. They do. I agree with you 100%. And so far, it's been about like one show per tour per year. Yeah. I think it basically comes down to about 12 tours. And then I guess plus the rising and, and any other little... Uh, short tours or one-off performances in there as well that they can release and unfortunately i agree with you I've, it may come down to the fact that they're gonna start releasing two wrecking ball shows a year and two devils and dust shows a year and you know it's not a bad thing but it just it just shows the lack of the multi-tracks from from the early days right of course of course if maybe they do have some plain old two-track soundboard recordings that they that they could get to from some of the classic from some of the classic tours but Right as of right now, I'm not holding my breath. I agree, and we'll see what comes in February. There are two tours that haven't been represented in a while: the Joe Tour and the '92 '93 Tour. Of course, the Rising <laughs> as well. But I mean, what's the point of even mentioning yeah. that? I mean, if they fix it, they fix it. Uh, nobody. It's obviously, not a, it's obviously to, not, a, yeah. not a not a priority for them, unfortunately. So, or it's just unfixable. One of the two. Do you do you really think it's unfixable? I, I truly do not understand. I mean, we've discussed this before. I, I don't see how they got one show extracted and that they haven't been able to use that to be able to extract at least one other show or or what's going on. It, it's a real mystery. I mean, you're generally more informed on these things than I am. Uh, I, I know you don't have much more insight into it. So mm -hmm. I, I, who knows? And of course, I think I would love to see a, another Joe show. I'd love to see a, a late 92 show, something that had a lot of the a lot of the new albums you know i was looking at like the first night in boston from december 92 and i think the first night even in philly yeah. even at the second night had more interesting interesting set list choices uh in the oldies slots well as we know the 92 93 tour is not the most loved <laughs> tour by fans i don't know if that factors into their thinking and in fact, that ties in well with our topic tonight because we're going to be talking 2009, the Working on a Dream tour, and that's another tour that is not as universally liked by fans as, as Springsteen tours normally are, wouldn't you say? <laughs> well, for a lot of people, it seems like a, a continuation of the Magic tour, except with uh, an inferior set uh, base set list. And See, I, I, I disagree with the idea that it's a continuation of the Magic Tour. Of course, in terms of the timeline, it's a continuation yes, of the Magic that's, Tour. That's but what I meant. The, the set, and I think one of the things as we get in here, one of the things that's it, that's interesting about this tour, and in, in a way it makes it more fun for us to talk about because there's, there's a lot of – he wasn't very focused. He didn't seem to have a set that really worked for him when the when the tour started. And we'll get to that in a moment. Of course, there's the Jay Weinberg issue. And, and then there's the fact in the fall, it morphs into this pretty incredible set of shows where the albums take over. And, and we just talked about the 11-7-2009 show at the Garden, where The Wild and the Innocent was played complete. And, and that's actually one of the things that sparked us to, to want to do this episode. It was an amazing performance, and but it wasn't just the album. The rest of the show was also great, but at, also at the same time, how many songs were there from the new album? Well, One? let's 
Let's go back to the. Let's go back to the beginning. Uh, where are we going? We're going to go back to back. the Super Bowl, February first, two thousand and nine. Oh man, that you know that was fun. That was, it was fun. It, it was fun. It was not, uh, you know, and, and as we know now, because from Bruce himself has said that that Super Bowl performance and his experience sort of sparked the book, which, of course, sparked Broadway. So that really did lead to a lot of stuff later on. The performance itself that night, I don't know. It, it was nice <laughs> to see. It, it, it certainly for the people who have heard for years that Bruce Springsteen is a legendary performer and they weren't really acquainted with him, did that 15 minutes show why he was so legendary? I would say no. We would have to ask them that question. That's true. But I got the, I got the feeling that, yeah, none of my friends, uh, especially my friends who have not been Bruce fans over the years, certainly did, did not call me saying, oh my God, that was great. It was more like, did he just say I'm going to Disneyland? <laughs> yeah, there was a lot of shtick in the Super Bowl performance. There's no <laughs> question about it. But they used it for the purpose of selling tickets to the tour, and the, the tickets went on sale. It was it was the next morning, right? I'm I pretty think, sure. Yeah, yeah, I think you're right. I think you're right. At least for the first leg. Yeah. But you know, I gotta be gotta be honest. It, even as you know, oldies focused as it was, I mean, we I guess there was the minute and a half of working on a dream, but. Uh. The player, the players introducing the band, where each one of them took a line from the whole hard, you know, house rocking, heartbreaking, et cetera, shtick that Bruce usually does. I, I got a jolt from that, and even, even a few years later, it, 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 when it comes up on my, uh, on my, on my shuffle, on my playlist while I'm working out or something, and I get it, I and I hear it, and I feel, I feel that rush of excitement that. That I used to get every time, and I, again, I can't say I get it with every, with every new show. But. Okay, I got to ask, you actually listened to the Super Bowl performance with, like, a verse cut out of Born to Run and all that? Yes, I have. You make oh. a one long track, and it's actually kind of cool. Okay, well. You know, it's, they had, there was some excitement there. I mean, there was that, they were, pl they were playing without a net, and they were having fun with it. It was scary, but in a fun way, and they just felt such a, an exhilaration to get it to finally be on that stage and be playing for real after two weeks of rehearsals for, for, for four songs. Oh, and it's a big showcase. And, and yes, he clearly exhibited a lot of joy doing it. I, I think if you 20 years earlier, we would have never bet that Bruce was going to do the Super Bowl. And <laughs> it's great that he did do it. And it, certainly the performance wasn't bad. But for me, I wouldn't put it up there in the annals of the the great halftime performances. It's 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 in the top five probably, but the top two for me are are easily you uh, two and Prince. Yes, definitely agree with you on that. But uh, Bruce is our guy, and hey, it gave us the the meme, the internet meme that's going to live on forever. You've been Bruce cocked. <laughs> well, all right, <laughs> let's move on to the rehearsals. Uh, okay. we, you and yeah, I that... found ourselves in Asbury Park once again on March 23rd and March 24th. And well, uh, go, yep, go well, on. Let's talk about the timing a little bit here. Uh, right. Um, the, obviously, the Super Bowl was February, you said February 1st. Yes, the tickets went on sale. Right. But so that was kind of weird because the album came out just before the Super Bowl performance. And then and then the, the, the tour doesn't start for another month and a half. So almost two months. So the timing was a little bit different. You would have expected everything to kind of happen all together. And that, it, that was that kind of, I think. Well, the thing was they were using the Super Bowl. That had been told when we were in Kansas City, 
at the end of the Magic Tour, I remember there was a huge party after the the Kansas City show, and people were already talking then that they were going to play the Super Bowl, and that was going to be used as a platform to launch the ticket sales for this next set of shows that was going to happen. So I think that's why it happened that way. They they wanted to use the Super Bowl to to really juice the tickets. Okay, well, but and I and I get that, but I guess my my point is that whatever momentum they had at the end of that Super Bowl performance. Had seemed to had dissipated by the time they reconvened in Asbury Park six weeks later. Well, we don't normally disagree that often, but I'm going to disagree with you here. I think it wasn't the energy dissipating from the Super Bowl. I think it was just that Bruce had no clue as to what he wanted to say <laughs> at this point. Uh, I'm being totally honest. No, I, mean, I, I, it, I get it. You look at what had happened. Obviously, Obama had been inaugurated, but we were in the middle of this economic catastrophe and the man had released an album called Working on a Dream, which didn't really seem to fit the time. On top of it, it wasn't a particularly well-received record. And that's where we found ourselves on March 23rd, 2009 at the opening rehearsal show. And so, yeah, he, he, he when he finally comes out and he plays uh, comes out with the set for at these rehearsal shows, he that's like the rough draft. That's a pretty pretty filled in rough draft, but it wasn't. Not it wasn't in two thousand and nine. It wasn't. No, it wasn't. That was. Yeah, he didn't yeah. know what to do. Now let's all. let's let's as we like to say, set the stage. In March twenty third, <laughs> two thousand and nine. He walked out on stage, and the first show opened with Outlaw Pete. Now and and. For those who've never been lucky enough to see a show in Asbury Park, of course, it's a tiny venue. It's the biggest fans. Everyone is really juiced up. And when these shows start, I mean, if you go back to the Magic Tour rehearsals or Christmas shows, the crowd is really into these shows. He comes out, he opens with Outlaw Pete. There was a very muted reaction. <laughs> yeah, well, the problem problem with this album is that there weren't, there weren't many songs that were going to be the cornerstones of the set you, you really didn't have an obvious show opener i mean I, I think he wanted outlaw pete to be the show opener but it just wasn't going to happen no and it was, uh, there was no clear that night right and there was no clear set closer and you know when, when you're already kind of when the new show based on the new album doesn't have a lot of those doesn't have anything new in the in the important slots it's it's going to be tough to to make it up with with the oldies or with the previous previously released stuff and then make it sound fresh. Well, what was ironic of course, is that the previous tour, the magic tour, which this was something of a continuation of was such a tightly constructed tight narrative set where he had so he had such fiery things to say. And here he sort of arrived at, at, and the first night was just, I don't want to, and of course it was rehearsal, so you can't be overly critical about a rehearsal, but I remember the biggest reaction I had that night in a, in a negative way was when Surprise, Surprise went at the Badlands. That is not a song pairing that one would expect to see. <laughs> no, it's not. No, it's not. And and then, of course, there was the return of Mary's Place, which had just been, which which had, after giving a rest, been giving a rest at the start of the Magic Tour, it started to morph into the 15-minute version that we had seen in, on The Rising. And that just really wasn't welcome uh, at that point. We wanted to, we really did want to see something new. And, you know, he tried. 
he, and he did try. There was the portion of the show that we used to call like the economic suite on the first night. He did I Ain't Got No Home, which actually was a pretty effective version. It was never heard again. Yeah, I, I, I like that version a lot, too. Uh, uh, I don't I don't understand why he dropped it, but obviously he felt it didn't work in that audience. So and something else that happened that night, which is going to impact the tour. After I Ain't Got No Home, Jay Weinberg was brought out for Good Eye and played a about uh, it was one, two, three, four, five, about six or seven songs. Jay did a, actually a very nice job that night. Now, if you had just looked at it, he 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 fired up the crowd, but he would become a storyline as the tour went on and not really in a positive fashion. <laughs> well, I, I got to give Bruce credit, at least for, for bringing Jay along with a lot of the uh, – the different stretches of the shows he he tried to bring him in you know six songs here at the, at the in the middle of the show then they would do six songs at the start of the show and you know 10 songs is that you know to, to cover the encores so they re, he really brought him in slowly which which should have which should have been helpful but it didn't seem to really keep the momentum going yeah it's it's one of those things and we're going to talk more about that as the tour goes on because Really, what happened was Jay was an 18-year-old kid, and and you can't blame him. And he's a hell of a drummer now. He plays for Slipknot. He's highly respected. But he just did not have the repertoire that you need to play in the E Street Band. It's just that simple. And and as the if he if Bruce was the type of artist where he was just going to play the same 25 songs a night, I think Jay would have gone up there and killed. But unfortunately, Bruce doesn't play the same 25 songs a night. He's playing from a batch of 200 songs <laughs> and that's going to become a problem later in the tour, but let's not let, we won't, we won't dwell that much on it right now. We'll, we'll talk about it as it comes up. Uh, the, the other thing that happens here on night one, there is no rising. There's no dancing in the dark. Uh, sometimes those, the key songs are left out of the rehearsals, but the set just did not flow. I mean, when we walked out that night, we everyone knew it, and I and Bruce clearly knew it. Uh, the, this the show had no flow, none, none at all. It was just seemed to be, I mean, except for the, I mean, even Johnny Nine Nine and Ain't Got No Home, even that really didn't have a flow. Even even if they were so so familiar or similar thematically and even and even musically, right. Uh, one other song that was played the first night that we should mention was this life which i it was only played like a, a small handful of times the rest of the tour right yes i think like once or maybe only uh, twice more i actually kind of enjoyed it uh I it was uh, it was dragged out way too long see <laughs> bruce, bruce but bruce never blows anything out come on so and then now getting to the second night the of course now bruce goes home the show had no flow i mean the audience knew it i'm sure the band knows it so, of course, the second night he comes out, and what does he do? Badlands. Exactly. The show opens with Badlands. That obviously changes things quite a bit. He did make other changes. The show did flow better. Kingdom of Days, which would be one of the standouts from Working on a Dream, uh, was played for the first time. And and the show had a, had a much better feel. Now, it also had Waiting on a Sunny Day returning, Darlington County. Uh, but it, it the show just flowed better, and and it and it and it felt more like a a real Springsteen show at, as the night went on, you know. And again, it's a rehearsal show, so nobody's expecting like it's going to be the greatest show of all time. 
but even then though you could tell he was he was struggling to find exactly what he wanted to say and and i and i think that would be a theme that would continue throughout 2009 and that is true it was as as you pointed out it was he he released this happy album in the middle of an of, of the of the biggest recession in 90 years or 80 years i mean how do you how do you balance the two but and he he obviously did not know how did not know how to balance the two. One of the other things to consider is, of course, both a, as an artist and also I think as a businessman, Bruce, when he's on tour, he wants to promote his record. Working on a Dream was the brand new record. And and they were, I think, trying to find a way to get these songs into the show. As, as we're about to find out, that was not very successful. And and the show the shows changed and songs started dropping out in, in a fashion we've never seen that quick on a Springsteen tour. I mean, as we know, know, he generally does change things up as the tour goes on much longer. And as you get to the end, some of the new stuff maybe falls out. He brings back some rarities or whatever. But here, I mean, within the first couple of nights, stuff just started going. <laughs> Yeah, that's an understatement. Um, you, were you at opening night in San Jose? I was, and okay. it was a very odd show, <laughs> for real. Uh, you know, again, he didn't seem to have tremendous flow. Uh, Good Eye was played, which was the only well, it wasn't the only time because it was played at the at the rehearsal show. But Good Eye was it was the only time on the tour proper never to be seen again. It went on. It just seemed like it lasted for like two hours. It was uh, the, the, uh, the arena literally was like, what the hell is going on here? Yeah, that was, uh, that was kind of out there. Look, are there bad Springsteen shows? Sure. I mean, we, you and I have seen some of them together. In fact, we're going to talk about one a little later, but this was not a bad show. It just wasn't a highly effective Springsteen show. It, it, for one thing, he didn't seem confident in this new material and 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 obviously that would be borne out as i said by the fact that it started dropping out uh, almost immediately and and again good eye was never seen again after this show <laughs> well for one though for one thing it did seem like it's opening night and even though they had two rehearsals it's it's still the first it's still the first real show so i wouldn't expect it to be you know mid tour form at that point but yeah See, of course, I've heard Good Eye. I heard that version of Good Eye. And what I, t- what I take away from it, or what I took away from it, is that he tried to make it something that it's really not. He tried to make it a... I don't even know what he was trying to make it about. Because he, he was using the bullet mic, which distorts yeah. the voice anyway. And it was... It just... It didn't go anywhere. If he had just played it, basically a straight version of it, from direct from the album have it segue out of something and back into something else and like in a seek in a cool sequence. I think that really, that would have worked really well, but he tried to make it this big thing. And it, as you said, it just, it just wasn't. One of the other problems working on a dream was a song that just didn't really work the way he wanted it to. I know it seems like the whole show is going to be negative here and it's not going to be because we're going to get to the fall when we're going to have really great things to say about what was going on. But it just with this one song, look, it's not a weighty song. And it was being used with this whole rap about building the house to be the centerpiece of the show. And and it, the crowd never really locked in on it. And that's why we say it just didn't have the feel of Springsteen shows of the past, to me, it just didn't have the depth. Now, there were some showstoppers. The Wrestler here and Mm -hmm. Every Night was just magnificent. Uh, The Hard Times Come Again No More 
worked extremely well and was beautifully performed and, and very relevant for the time. So it's not like there weren't high points in the show, but the show, especially coming off the Magic Tour, where if we go through it, there were so many great shows on the Magic Tour, and he did so many amazing things, and then goes to show the importance of the narrative, because I don't think the band was playing any less at this point, but the narrative and and what he was trying to say, uh, it, it was just, it was like night and day to what had been the year before. Well, one word I would like to, to nominate as a substitute for your narrative is just flow. Right, yeah. Well, we said that about Asbury. Right. The... But narrative is comes up when you have when you have the songs like Last to Die into Long Walk Home into Badlands. That's a narrative, but it also has a that's also a, a tremendous flow that where each song segues into each other and it's, it's just like one big one one great song. There was he just he never found the flow. Uh, yeah. like, there was a little bit from the like from the when he did Wrestler into Kingdom of Days and then some com- combination of. Radio Nowhere, Lonesome Day, The Rising, and Born to Run. I thought that actually worked really well. Now, the the Rising wasn't played in San Jose, so I didn't see that there. It wasn't played for the first time until the following night in Arizona, and I agree with you that it helped establish some better rhythm to the show. Of course, one of the things that also does is it did lead to new songs being dropped, and we get a lot of people probably weren't missing the new songs, and certainly I wasn't when it came to something like Good Eye, but, you know, you and I both always feel that Bruce is at his best when he has something timely and relevant to say with the new material. Well, I want to append to your thought about he has to have he wants to he needs to have something to say. He needs to have something to say with the new songs. Yes. And that's I think that's the key here is that the new songs didn't they weren't they didn't seem to be what he was feeling at the time. Right. For whatever and, reason, he wasn't feeling them. I don't know if maybe even if he thought they weren't as good or if he just knew or felt the audience wasn't going to be as receptive to them as the older material. But he just he never I don't think he I don't think he gave them a chance, to be honest. No, he did not. And and what happens here is and we're not going to go through every show in this detail because this episode will be six hours. <laughs> but so what happens is that you've got he starts mixing the setup with with the a lot of oldies and then you get to the requests and, 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 and that's, there's a, suddenly there's a portion in the middle of a Springsteen show where the set list is indicated with question marks and he's literally taking signs out of the audience. So, you know, that's basically where we found ourselves and, 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 and he, he was mixing the sets up. He came to LA. We saw the shows here. Uh, they were two perfectly fine shows. We enjoyed them. They just didn't have the mark of the same sort of special quality that we had been used to throughout the reunion era and certainly the year before. One thing about about Bruce's tour is, is that each one seems to have a distinct personality. I don't know if I've mentioned that before. You know, the Darkness tour has its personality with the with the Backstreets and the Prove It All Night and then the River with the, the Hungry Heart. The way the second set would start off with those five rocker, four or five rockers in a row. Obviously, the USA tour is, you know, has its own personality, and it's a big one. But on this one, there wasn't. It didn't have that. There's no distinctiveness. There's nothing. There's very, very few, very few songs that were done only on this tour. 
Well, and, and part of it is going back to the sign thing. Much of the night as uh, was determined by what he took out of the crowd, and while that led to some really fun moments. The thing is, it wasn't Bruce putting his artistic stamp on the show. He didn't sit backstage and go, okay, this is the show I'm doing tonight. And even though we know he audibles from that, there is a mindset as to what he's trying to do on that evening. I I think here it just, you know, and I've used this word uh, occasionally uh, in regards to other shows. The whole thing became a bit of a hodgepodge. Yeah. All right. Well, and the the word I would use for some of these requests is just novelty. Yeah. You know, it. When it's not organic, when when it when Bruce doesn't doesn't seem to be inspired to bring in, you know, like I see, I'm I'm looking at the Boston set list. He did he did I'm bad I'm nationwide the first night. He did I want to be sedated the second night. They were obviously sign request, but it wasn't like Bruce was jamming to ZZ Top before the show, right? Or he wasn't you know banging his head to the Ramones thinking about the verse of Hungry Heart he he could have given them in 1979. It was. It was. It's just a thrill of of seeing the E Street Band, a great band, do a, a cover of these songs. And yeah, they were great. But what does it add? It was fun for the moment. So throw it in the encores. Do Wild Thing in the encores with everyone singing along. Do I'm Bad I'm Nationwide in the encores. Do Proud Mary in the encores. There was no to have th- the the heart of the set be this whatever Bruce felt like playing that somebody brought a sign for, and it just. Yeah, it didn't work for me. It did. Yeah, it didn't really work. And and it was a very distinct experience from the very, very focused Springsteen shows that we are accustomed to. And, and, and this was really the year before. Right, and this really was the start of that trend. Now, of course, in 2012, he did go back to a very focused show on the, uh, on the Wrecking Ball Tour, and that lasted for almost all of 2012. It, it changed in 2013. But since then, uh, you know, we've seen that uh, in other times, especially in 2016, after he he ditched the record, that the shows weren't necessarily as focused as and there's nothing wrong with going to a show and having loads of fun and then all that. And these shows were fun. No, I'm sure nobody walked out of a show in 2009 going, oh, yeah, I didn't have fun that night. I, I saw quite a number of shows. I had fun. You know, I, but I saw a bunch. I had fun. <laughs> they, they didn't. They didn't. They didn't leave the imprint. There was something so special going on in 2008, and and here there was a drop off. It's just undeniable. And then on top of it, you had the J factor, and unfortunately, you also had the factor. And and we know that this would be his last tour. You know, but Clarence from night to night was 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 very uneven. Mm. Yeah, and his playing seemed to decline as as the tour went on, and he became more of more of a visual symbol than basically than what his than he was than what he was adding with the saxophone on many nights. Yeah, and he, although well, and we'll get to the shows at the end. He did have several big nights, fortunately, especially the two garden shows and so forth. And and one of the things that Bruce did clearly, Kurt Rahm was brought in to help Clarence. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. On the, on the first American leg in 2009, did you see any shows that stood out to you? Well, I mean, I would like to say the one of the the, the two Philly shows on April 28th and 29th. But, you know, I guess I'm because it was just released at Nassau Coliseum show, I guess just released. It was released about nine months ago. 
you know, maybe it's because it was on my birthday, so I have some personal <laughs> attachment there. But listening to that one on the release makes me appreciate it even more than I did at the time because it had a great flow with, as I was just talking about, the Wrestler Kingdom of Days, Radio Nowhere, you know, Lonesome Day, The Rising Born to Run, to, to end the set. And that's a different kind of set ender than what we've seen or what we had seen prior to 2007 anyway. But that that was the flow that 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 worked well for me and of course he did so he did something off of tracks he did rendezvous he did you know seeds and the ghost of tom joad which were they were pretty common but this night they 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 really worked for me well and we should talk about the wrestler because the bottom line is that's really where the tour took a dip when he stopped playing the wrestler the wrestler to me was was such an important and and just a beautifully performed song in the middle of the show. And when it was dropped, it, it just, that did not make any sense to me. And, uh, you know, I think he gave up on the songs way too early. It, it's a rarity because normally, of course, he, he has complete confidence and he knows what he wants to do. And it, 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 we'll never know why, but the, the and the wrestler had had won all sorts of awards although it wasn't nominated for an Oscar, but it, it won the Golden Globe, if I recall properly, and it had certainly gotten a lot of publicity, and just really strange that the song was dropped. Yes, and I, I liked it. I loved it a lot when it was paired with Kingdom of Days. I don't. I thought those two songs should have been played every single night. Yes. That, to I, me, that would have been the heart of, the emotional heart of the show, and he, when they, when those songs were missing, there was no there's no emotional weight to it. It just seemed too, I don't want to say superficial, but there was certainly not a lot of depth. Right. And Kingdom of Days did generally get played. It was played the entire American, first American leg, I believe, which ended, and you and I were at those shows, the, the May 21st, 2009 and May 23rd, <laughs> 2009 shows at the, well, the, we'll call it the Meadowlands. At that point, it was called the Izod Center. Now, the first night was a show that Jay played in, he played the whole show. And, and that was really, to me, where I started to see, you know, and again, 18-year-old kid, we're not, see, part of the thing here is, and one of the things that gets debated, and, and it was debated at the time, Bruce is a major artist. He's selling tickets. Yes, people have higher price tickets than him, but he's selling tickets to his audience. And the fact is, on the nights that Jay played, and you didn't know what night that was going to be, quite frankly, the band was not at the level that you would expect. We saw that on, on May 21st, 2009. <laughs> well, yeah, I think I mentioned this before, but we walked out of the show on May 23rd. And he said to me, they have a major problem. I'm like, Wait, What's you mean that? on the on the 21st? Oh, no. Oh, you said to me on the 23rd. Oh, because oh, Jay played the whole show on the 21st. Right, and Max played on the 23rd, right. Right, Max played the, all, the whole show on the 23rd. And, you, and after the show on the 23rd, you said they have a major problem. I'm like, what? Because I was thinking like, oh, my God, I, was, I saw a fantastic show. I really loved it. And you're like, well, Jay's just not up to par. And it's like, well, you know what? You're right. <laughs> Yeah, they, <laughs> but that, that wasn't that wasn't my focus walking out of the show though. But it, it was it was for you it seemed. Well, it was on my mind because what it meant was it was it was sort of like roulette in a way. <laughs> you know, one night you'd show up and Jay would be the drummer, and the next night you'd show up and Max would be the drummer. And you know, we're lucky we go to a number of shows. The people showing up just for one night. If you're getting the J night, you know, that is not, you're, you're, I don't want to say you're not getting your money's worth, 
but you know, the bottom line is you didn't get what you would have gotten if Max was there. And no. and I understand it was an insurmountable problem in a way because Max was on the Tonight Show, which is the crown jewel of American television, at least in the late night, and a major revenue producer for NBC. And and understandably, NBC wasn't going to be like one of the stars of the show can just leave whenever they want. <laughs> and, and NBC had been very accommodating for years uh, with the touring, but this was different. And I, I don't know how it sh it should have been handled. You know, we of course many people talked at the time could they brought in another drummer. I think part of it was they didn't seem to maybe know what nights Max was going to be there. And by having Jay, it could be like, okay, when Max can't show up, Jay goes on. If 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 Max is there, then Jay goes back. Because you really, let's say Bruce had gone to Kenny Aronoff and said, I, I need you to come and sit in. I don't think you could have Kenny Aronoff sitting there going and say to him, oh, so Max just showed up. You're not playing tonight. So, <laughs> Well, I, I, I have to doubt that they didn't know what nights – Max was not going to be there because the because of the way they were Jay in. He didn't start out playing a whole show. It was because Max all of a sudden couldn't show up. It was they eased him in. As, and I gave That's him credit true. for that. And it, but then it seemed like when you when you got to May, you got to the, the the May sweeps for TV, and all of a sudden you know Jay's there a lot more. So I think they already had already planned on which shows they would have Jay and which and which and which ones Max would be. Right, but even over the summer, which is certainly not a sweeps period, there was uh, uh, much of the European tour, which we're going to discuss, uh, Max is not there. Well, isn't that because the they were Conan was moving to the 1130, 1130 yeah, slot, 1135 right. slot? Yeah, that's what I'm saying, yeah. Right, so they had to gear them up all that summer, and I guess I guess in that way, with, with the rehearsals, they, they didn't always know how, how it was, the schedule was going to be, at least, for the, at least for the first part of the summer. Right. So uh, let's talk about the 23rd. That was, I mean, it's certainly the best show that I saw in 2009 before we got to the garden. That was actually a really good show. The crowd was fired up. There was a beautiful version of Incident. And, and it, was a, it was a top flight show. Of course, it was still missing the wrestler and, and, and stuff had changed. But it was a very energetic evening and, and, a, and a very enjoyable show. In the in addition to the songs you mentioned, what I really took away was was Moni Moni at the end of the show. I, it had been a signed request about two months earlier, or actually just about a month earlier, or a few weeks in Chicago, I believe, in mid-May. Sorry, got my got my chronology messed up there. But that was fun. The entire audience, the entire crowd was singing along to it, and it was just it was fucking fun. All right, I'm just gonna say it. I'm like, that's what the encore should be. They shouldn't. You shouldn't have these. These covers, these spontaneous covers done in the middle of a show, there's, you know, look, save them for the encores and let's have the fun. Let's have the bar band then. That's just, you know, my little rant there about something that happened almost 12 years ago. So I'll shut up now. From there, they went to Europe and uh, Jay became the primary drummer for much of Europe. And he a lot of songs that hadn't been played previously on this tour, Jay was now being asked to play. In all honesty, it's hard for me to listen to the Jay shows. Uh, and I, I would I think we would agree there will never be an archive released where Jay was on drums for the entire show, correct? Uh, probably not. I would, I, I, if they asked me for input, I would try to, I would steer them away from that. But so, yes. There, <laughs> I, there were some notable performances. Of course, there was the Hyde Park performance and, uh, that was, an, that was an all-Mac show, wasn't it? 
Yeah, well, that was a yeah, that was, and that's why I'm saying it was notable. And also, you know, that was a big platform for them because uh, it was that the first time he played a festival, Hard Rock Calling. I thought it was a couple nights earlier. Um, didn't he do? Wasn't there oh, something right. else? Oh, he Glastonbury. He played Glastonbury. Of course, you're right. Right. Yeah. He played in, yeah. in Bonner in Bonnaroo. Oh, right. He had done Bonnaroo. That's correct. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. He came yes. back from Europe to do Bonnaroo. <laughs> yeah, I think they 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 played in Norway on June 10th, and then on June 13th they took the stage in Manchester, Tennessee for for Bonnaroo. Yeah, that's right. What show would they even release from here? I mean, these are certainly not among the best shows of the reunion era, that's for sure. Well, I would say the the three Italian shows in, in late July, I thought, were, were pretty hot. I mean, they that's when you, Loose Ends oh, even opened a show. You had The Return of Murder Incorporated, My Love Will Not Let You Down. Uh, even American Skin started started getting played, and you know, and even Drive All Night. That's when it started showing up again. So I thought the, the Italian trio was, was pretty hot. Yeah, it looks it. And who did Max drum those shows? Was he back by then? I, I think he was. I, I'm pretty sure he was, but I'm not 100%. There was a, again, not to beat a dead horse, but there was a substantial <laughs> difference in quality depending on who the drummer was. It's not just in the reduction of the, of the number of songs and the potential pool to pull from, but it just wasn't he wasn't the best fit for, for what Bruce was doing. I don't think these are the shows that anyone's going to look back on at the end of Bruce's career. They're just, as we've been saying since the start, they, they, and, and there's nothing wrong with a party, but <laughs> the, the, the shows did not really have a perspective, which you expect from a Springsteen show. No. Right. They, they, well, as I said earlier, they didn't have their own distinct personality. It was, it was a party. Maybe that, maybe that's the personality, but there was nothing really wasn't adding too much to his legacy. The thing I've always wondered is when did Bruce make the decision to start doing the albums during the fall shows? Because uh, uh, that was so out of character for him to to do that complete album thing. And other bands had been doing it, but I don't think we ever really expected that he would do that, did we? Well, we have to go back to the May show, the May two thousand eight show at the Basic, where he did do Darkness and Born to Run in their entirety. Right, but of course. When we got to the to the late summer and fall of 2009, after two years of touring, ticket sales were start, were starting to to slide a little bit. He it wasn't the instant sellout. I mean, it's even in places like Philadelphia and Boston, and so it probably came as kind of a way to to so actually kind of solve two issues. Is that one, it gave the show a much better flow. Yes, there was that focus, yeah. there was that emotional and narrative arc. That just that was just so perfect, which, of course, you know, they are because the albums are indeed perfect. And then it also they could say, OK, at this show, Bruce is going to play all of Born to Run or all of Born in the USA. And, you know, somebody who's, you know, on, kind of on the fence, like, eh, I'm not sure I want to go. Oh, he's going to do he's definitely going to do Jungle Land. OK, I'll go. Now, let's they came back from Europe before they started the album shows and. They did a series of shows in amphitheaters, including one on August 25th, 2009 in Saratoga. That happens to be your wedding anniversary. <laughs> yes, it is. And we were all at the show together, a large group of us. Let's uh, talk a little about the events of that evening. Do you want to uh, give your perspective? <laughs> um, it was a solid show. 
at the start? No, it wasn't. Well, well I was going to say for what, 12 seconds? I don't know what to say about it. <laughs> well, what do you mean? You you know what to say. You don't be shy. It just it just didn't talk about a night when you you see Bruce and the band on stage and you know whatever the the it is wasn't there. No. And, and we were let's let's we were in the front row hands on stage right in front of him. It was a tiny little pit. We had gotten the tickets when they went on sale and there was a small pit and a, few, a bunch of people showed up like an hour and a half, two hours, whatever it was before the show. And they let us in. And I think there was maybe 200 people in that pit, something yeah, like a, that. It was a very small pit. It was like the size of the like the orchestra, so, orchestra I, pit. So, so and, and Bruce was about as close to us as any real, you know, clubs, whatever. That's a different story. But that it was a low, lower stage than normal. And Bruce was about as close to us as you can possibly get without being in the band. In fact, we were probably closer to him than some of the band members were <laughs> but the show started and it, jay was on drums now they had done a lengthy sound check which included some cool stuff including queen of the supermarket which i we listened to from the outside i think gave me a, a it, it made me laugh i mean i thought it was fun but it wouldn't be in the show and the, the well, show started go ahead well the song that he, he sound checked that i really wanted to see was spare parts oh yeah that was good too <laughs> It was because they did it in the rock arrangement that he did back on the Tunnel of Love tour. And it's one of those songs that I was very surprised. I'm still, still very surprised that it hadn't shown up more in the reunion era. Because it's it's a rock song. It's something they it's not, you know, it's not like two faces. <laughs> it's not one step up. It's something that could that, that would rock. And but it never showed up. I actually made some remarks on the internet after the show, which I, I think sparked conversation on Marsh's show. You actually called in. Uh, they w I called in. They didn't put me on. You called in. They put you on. Because basically my point was after the show, Jay, it, it, people are not getting their money's worth. That That's it. It's, it's just, I mean, uh, if that offends anyone, I, I do apologize. That was my opinion after the show. And... It's my opinion to this day that Jay was not up to the task that night. Again, it's it's very hard to say because an 18 year old kid, we don't want to pick on him. But you know, 18,000 people or whatever it was had paid to see that show. One of the things that I think impacted it was there were quite a number of songs in the show that either had been rarely played with Jay or hadn't been played at all with Jay. And. He, the show started, No Surrender and Badlands, I, I think, were fine. And Radio Nowhere, which was by far Jay's best song, mm -hmm. went went fine. And then from there, they were, started having problems. And <laughs> and Jay got lost somewhere during the course of the evening and and never recovered the the down point being racing in the street. And and Bruce was standing right in front of us, the the, the, the song. And it's it would be funny to listen to now again because I, and and see if it's as bad as of a train wreck as I remember it. But I, I mean, I have the visual of Bruce standing right in front of us, shouting at Jay the entire coda, tempo, tempo. Mm, and well, what I remember is when he Bruce audible darkness on the edge of town. He he turned around to Jay and said, you know, and mouthed the you know darkness. And Jay's like, what? I I don't know what you're saying. 
and finally Bruce went, darkness on the edge of town, very over-enunciating so that Jay could read his lips. And I, I, I was feeling bad for Jay at that point. He was put in an impossible position. And, and, and this is not, and this was what I said at the time, this was not to pick on an 18-year-old kid. It was the decision-making that really was the thing, the question, and whether he should have put it, been put in that position to begin with. I, I think they got away with it for a little while on this night, it 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 went it went wrong and uh, you know i remember in the encores it was the weirdest thing because we were there and and it just seemed so low energy and and one of the things that i said to you and in fact the only shows i would see after this were the garden shows we talked about this with lowell last time you know how much it still moves me and 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 i've always said if it didn't move me the way i think that it should, I would stop going. And after this night, I basically said, you know what, I, I'm going to take a, a break for a while. It, it's, I'm not getting the same. I certainly wasn't getting the same thing out of it that I had the year before when we went through Nashville, St. Louis and Kansas City for my 40th birthday. And it, it literally, literally was one of the great things that I that I've ever done. This, you know, w- was not that. Well, to be f- just to give Cut Jay a little bit of slack here. I did talk to some people who had to, who who had talked to people who were actually on the stage, and Jay wasn't the only one having a bad night. I don't I don't I'm, I don't want to mention any names, but there are other other band members who admitted that they were not at the top of their game either. So it was definitely a uh, a group effort. Well, it's a chain reaction, and of course, if the drummer is even slightly off, you you're going to have problems. So. Uh, that may have led to other people not having their best night. Maybe they showed up. You know, it's it's one of those things. It's it's like sports. I mean, you got to be on every night. Could Michael Jordan possibly be on every night? And of course, he wasn't. And 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 that's the same thing here. It, now, from what you're saying, it sounds like multiple band members. Sh- because what you would think is on any given night, if someone shows up not at their best, the, the rest of the band members are picking them up. It sounds like here, maybe there was quite a number of them not at their best. Well, looking at the schedule, they had just, it was between August 19th and August 25th, they played four songs. They played four shows, including the, the, the incredibly hot shows. And I don't mean it by they were great performances. I mean, which I heard they were, but there was a heat wave going on in, on the East Coast on August 22nd and August 23rd. And they played back-to-back nights at that shed in Mansfield. And that probably took more out of them than they would have liked to admit at the time. And so, you know, that could be a reason. It may, it's not an excuse, but it could be a reason. And and certainly since then, they haven't really played too many sheds. Yeah, they have not. They played a couple more sheds after Saratoga. And then finally, we get to September 20th, 2009, which was the first show where an album was played complete. It was Born to Run. And, and I think that's where the tour starts to turn. Now, it's still not a traditional Springsteen tour in terms of him saying something very current through his music. But what he did was by taking the albums, as you say, he gave the show a lot better flow. He focused the show. And of course, you're playing Born to Run its entirety. That's going to really get crowds fired up. Yes, yes. And it, and it did. And, and it really worked. We've heard the, we certainly heard the, what, the four or five archive releases from the, from that tour that have, that had full album performances. And they were a lot better than the, than the shows that didn't. They most certainly were. And, and, 
it's interesting because after the, he did do the album in Chicago, then the next night he went to Des Moines where he did not do a record. However, that show did feature <laughs> something very special in the middle of the show. And that was the first version of Incident into Rosalita since New, New Year's, uh, not New Year's Eve, the New Year's Eve stand that we talked about in the last episode, 1229.80. Right. And that's, that just came out of nowhere. Yeah. I, I assume that Incident well, but was... Did, but did it. Because by then, were they rehearsing? Because as we know, The Price uh, You Pay was played in Philly. Uh, I Want to Marry You was played in Philly. So were they slowly working in songs, knowing that the, the tour was going to arrive in New York and do these two tremendous shows with songs off these two rarely played albums? I think that's a very valid point. And, you, and you're probably right. They did kind of ease in some of the, you know, but of course, you know, Wild Billy's never showed up until you know, except for that one night. So... They eased in some of that material, as you said. And that everyone we know who was in Des Moines says that was a really good show. And then they got to the to the Meadowlands, the the end of Giant Stadium to close the place down. And the, it was Born to Run the first night, Darkness the second night, Born in the USA the third night, Born to Run, and then back to Born in the USA. Now, I didn't see any of those shows. As I said, after the Saratoga show, not a huge fan of stadium shows to begin with. After the Saratoga show, I was ready for a break. And in fact, Pearl Jam played four shows that week in, <laughs> at Universal here in L.A. And those were awesome shows. So I, I was taking a break. But what do you remember those shows? Well, I didn't go that first night. It's like the only, the only one of the only New Jersey, New York, New Jersey shows that I've missed since I moved up here. And I don't regret it. Um, when the first time I heard Wrecking Ball, I thought it was absolutely horrible. I <laughs> thought it was cheesy applause lines after cheesy applause line, and you know, and I and I guess I didn't get the metaphor from the get go. I just thought it was about a, a football stadium and with with cheesy lines about, uh, as I said, about airplanes or mosquitoes as big as airplanes and and the rest of that. So I was. I don't want to say I was down on Bruce, but I certainly wasn't. Uh, I didn't have the same feel to it that I that I used to have. Yeah, that I did have I even earlier in the year. Yeah. So, but you know, then but then I went to the other four shows, and there was there were some quality shows in there. Nothing that that came to the level of of two thousand three at Giant Stadium for me, but certainly the performance of of the Darkness album, and then the Born to Run show on where is that on the on october 8th that that was something else that was more of a career retrospective incorpor incorporating all eras of his career than any, any other show that i that i saw that year he did after the album state in the city my love will not let you down because the night and then of course human touch into lonesome day the rising badlands no surrender so he was really mixing it up with in a very in a very it seemed to be focused. It seemed to be like, like more of a focus show that, have, that had a better flow than many other shows that I saw. And then from the Meadowlands, he, he went to the Spectrum for four final nights there. Now, interestingly, he even Philadelphia had some problems selling tickets, even if they yeah. even as they announced the album performances. And that's something that he certainly had never really seen in, in, in the recent decades in Philadelphia, but it was happening. But I do think that he responded in a big way because the Philly shows, and again, you saw these, I did not, but the Philly shows 
really as good as the Meadowland shows might have been. The Philly shows is, are really where the tour in this last month or so really rose to a level that would have been unpredictable from what we had seen earlier in the year. Oh, I agree with you 100 uh, percent. That's when he finally started uh, bringing out the rarities, even even the totally old rarities like Seaside Bar Song and Thundercrack. And then I want to marry you. And when you walk in the room and, of course, uh, the price you pay on the closing night. So this was a, when 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 Bruce prepares a unique song, when he when he prepares it, when he when they sound check it and they're focused to do it, that's a hundred times better than when he just pulls out a sign and they and they put and they put the show together or they put the song together, oh, basically. For on sure. The fly. For sure. Now, now one of the, a, I'm sorry. Go ahead. And one of the songs that was a big highlight. I mean, I, I only saw one show. I only saw the 20th. But the, the one show that I would really wish I could have seen was the show on the 14th when he did yeah. What, what Love, Love Can, can do. do. And because that's one of the it's one of the few really rock songs. It's a total rock song from the from the album Working on a Dream. And yet that's the only time he did it. It's a complete mystery to me why, uh, and and these would be great questions if one ever got a chance to talk to him. What Love Can Do is is a good song, and better than, certainly a much better song than Working on a Dream, which was played almost every night. Well, it was played every night except for The, the River, I believe. And What Love Can Do, why was the song only played once on the tour that it was where the album it was on was being promoted. I mean, in fact, I could make an argument that it should maybe have even been played since then. But why was it only played once on this tour? And and it was a great version that they did there on October fourteenth. Yes, it it should have stayed around. It should have been more than just a total one off performance. It was it's a rock song. It was new. It fit in perfectly after Ties That Bind, and. Had a great has a great guitar. Well, not maybe not a great guitar solo, but it has a, a rocking guitar solo. Yeah, we're, that should have been you know in the first five, four or five songs every night. And that's and that's uh, again, did he not have the faith in the material? Uh, some of the songs, obviously, he did try, like we discussed with Good Eye, which were quickly jettisoned. And I I didn't see what love can do myself. I did see Good Eye, and it did not work. But from the tape, it certainly sounds like what love can do worked beautifully. Uh, I have this, I agree with you hundred percent. And then it's, you know, but then it stuck around just for that one night. Yeah. So I just, that very, as I say, mysterious that, uh, and, and kingdom of days, what love can do. These were songs that could have been played the wrestler, as we mentioned, and, and they just were not. So we'll never know the answer. I don't think as as to why he didn't have the faith in that material, but it didn't really matter as much as in, in October because these shows were just scorching. Oh, yeah, they they really were. And speaking of hot shows, let's talk about that final night at the Spectrum, October 20th, which I know you were at. Yes, I was. And, uh, well, obviously, you opened with The Price You Pay. Uh, your theory about them preparing for these album shows uh, later later in the tour definitely seems to have some evidence there. And, of course, the big, the, the big song in this show was Higher and Higher. We got to give our friend Joe Lewin a pop there because Big he was time. the one who had the sign and that really did his sign really changed the tour and now we were talking earlier about some of the signs they weren't well prepared or whatever 
this was a different case. And, and, and look, you know it was a different case because look at what happened once the sign was pulled. Most of the signs that Bruce pulled, they did a, you know, a perfunctory version, the, maybe a little bit of energy or whatever, and the songs were forgotten. Here he pulled a sign, and this, of course, was a song that was a showstopper for them uh, 30 years earlier. He pulled a sign, and the show was changed and from there he kept the song every night because the song worked so well and brought mm -hmm. such an energy to the building that he kept it so it, it yes it was off a sign and and we thank joe for that because it was a good one it's just interesting that that it worked out that way well i think they they found a song that really utilized kurt rom so that he just wasn't a backup to clarence that he was that his horn had a, a viable a very visible role in, in, in that one song. Oh, but what about just, his performance of gonna fly now? Oh, well that's, that was, that was cool too. When he, whenever he did that intro to Rosie, but he only did it those four nights. Right. Well, they were only in Philly those four nights. You wouldn't do gonna fly now somewhere else. Well, why not? It was, it was great. It was people. It's not like people don't know the song. They've seen Rocky. They know it, it would have worked, but, but yeah, your love uh, keeps lifting me higher and higher was the, it was the one that, uh, you know, Sometimes the signs bring off bring up great things. Now let's talk about the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame. You were there, right? I was. I was there. Well, I was there the, the night with the East Street Band. I wasn't there the second night with you two. Oh yeah, the second night not, with you not two. Not you, that's, Hal, but the band yeah. you two. Yeah, the second <laughs> the second night. I would have much preferred to be at the second night. That that performance was really special. You, you had Fogarty. You had Morello there. I mean, that was a good show, right? It was. That was a lot of fun. I was behind the stage up high, and I I had a great time, as good a time as, as I would have had had I been, had I been in front. Um, Darlene Love on Fine, Fine Girl or Fine, Fine Boy uh, on Do Run, Run, Run or whatever it is. And then London Calling with Morello and, you know, New York State of Mind with Billy Joel was good. Born to Run, not so much, but, you know, we'll, we'll keep it at that. Two very high quality nights, shows that I wish I had seen. I, I was not there for the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame shows, especially since I was coming in the next week for the two garden shows, and, and I certainly wasn't going to miss those. After the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame, Bruce went to Washington, he went to Charlotte, and then on- and There are no the, tapes of those shows. No tapes of either show? No. That's really unusual. That's very unusual. Uh, I think even the Penn State show from that spring, there's not a full tape. I think there's some bonus tracks on the Crystal Cat release of uh, buffalo but no full no full show recording yeah that that just seems so unusual for 2009 fortunately there were great tapes of the next shows and now of course there are official archives of both of the next two shows that would be november 7th and 8th at the garden we just spoke about november 7th in the last episode when they released the archive it was it was a, it was a big night and the and the album performance was it was stupendous uh, they, one of the most memorable things i've ever seen and they definitely brought brought their A game, as as you mentioned, Clarence. Clarence really shown at, at these two shows. And, yes, he did. And he didn't always he didn't shine at every show, but these but these two shows he really brought it. And it's great that we have the archive the archive releases to be able to really appreciate appreciate that. Yeah, and the next night was truly one of the great nights in rock and roll that I've ever seen. Of course, he did introduce it saying, it's too damn long, we're not going to do it again, which <laughs> turned out to be not true. But uh, know, it's, 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 that in no way tarnishes what took place on November 8th, 2009. A, a truly epic performance. 
it, of uh, an album that uh, featured songs that I certainly never expected that I would see, even as many times as I've seen Bruce. And just what took place even after the record, the performance, they, uh, the entire arenas can happen at the Garden and, and the band, they were on absolute fire. And this was the last show that I ever saw Clarence Clemens play. I did not go to Buffalo in, in a way, I'm, I'm almost glad that this was the last show, as much as I would like to have been in Buffalo, that the fact that this show represents the last time I saw Clarence play with the band, you know, marks it as an even now in memory, a more special evening. Of course, I didn't know that at the time. And just two wonderful nights. And, and as much as what we were saying about earlier in the tour with lack of focus and, and the show not having any flow, these two shows back to back, certainly at that point in their careers, you know, we, if you go back to the darkness tour, of course they played great shows back to back, but it, the, the, these stand as two of the best back to back shows. Of course, I had also seen Nashville and St. Louis the year before, which, which, was unbelievable, but these two shows are right up there and just remarkable evenings and, and, and glad that I was there. Yeah. They, um, they saved their best for, for those two shows. I guess we can look at it, you know, after they played five nights at giant stadium, they played four nights in Philadelphia. So the people who went to these two shows, I mean, they were repeat customers or just, or really dedicated fans. And, so they got to hear something very unique, at least, you know, especially at least for the next you know, five years or something. I'll never forget. It was the Monday before the first show. And I was in my apartment in L.A. And I saw I think I saw it before anyone else. They had released. I forget how they released the information that the Wild and the Innocent and the River were going to be played. And I started calling. They, nobody seemed to know when I got them on the phone. And I was so excited. And I was like, the, the, I was like, the wild and the innocent in the river are going to be performed. And people were like, no, oh, stop. You're making that up. I'm like, I am not making it up. <laughs> well, it just seemed almost too good to be true. But but then you realize that the, that the albums really are, I mean, they have a connection to New York City. I At, at the show on the 7th, on the Bruce obviously talked about half of the album was about his romanticized visions of the city. And then, of course, and then the river, you know, that the four shows at the Garden in 1980, which we and in Nassau Coliseum that we talked about a few weeks ago, you know, those were the shows that really submitted him as not just a cult act, but but of, of a major rock act in the United States. I'd love to ask Bruce, especially now, unfortunately, since Clarence is gone, what those shows mean to him. I, I imagine and I don't know if he listens to the archive releases before they come out or after they come out. But it would be interesting to know what he thinks about those nights because they, they have to stand this special in his mind, I would think. I would think so, too. I, I would imagine that he probably remembers shows better than we probably give him credit for. Um, now, I think I think in, in in a situation like this, it's like those two shows are going to stand out more than, say, something from the spring or, or the oh, summer. I would think so. Now, the next show was in Cleveland. That was actually a really good show, too. And there was a version of Back in Your Arms in that show that <laughs> was off the charts. Yes, it was. That's that's the if they want to release a Born to Run show from from that fall. I think this would this would be the one that I would certainly give my wholehearted endorsement of, because yes. not only was the performance really good of the album, but 
the the post album set i mean with redheaded woman and the rockabilly arrangement pink cadillac back in your arms and that's the bad that's the best back in your arms he's ever done and you know and i've i and i've seen other performances of, of the song but and i wasn't in cleveland so I'm, i don't have any attendance bias on this one that was but it's by far the best one you think it's better than 8499 i do okay. i do he put more he i think had, those are the two best okay well i to me the I mean, the, his talking about getting, you know, begging and all that stuff was, it went on longer in Cleveland, but it was, it was, that was fine because it really worked well. And then it, it's funny. <laughs> he knew he nailed it after, after that performance. He, you knew he nailed it. He said, yeah, good night, everybody. Yeah, he knew it. Yeah. And, but it didn't, but then funny. it's, but then it's frustrating because, well, why don't you play more often? <laughs> you well, know, it's a great I, song. Well, you know, you can deliver we ask, That's a question we ask a lot. <laughs> But I think we should get to the end because uh, the show may be running a little long now. Well, we do have a lot to say about this stuff, but um, but one more one more little incident I want to I want to. I, I think we here. do need to talk about it. Go ahead. <laughs> Is that the the show after Cleveland? They went to Detroit, Michigan, and then uh, Bruce committed the the nightmare scenario, the nightmare sin of literally every musician on the planet, every touring musician, which was he called out good evening, good evening, Ohio. And of course, he was in Michigan at the time. So not good. Not good. Yeah, he uh, and then it took a while for Steve or some of the other band members to get to remind Bruce exactly where he was. And, you know, he had some fun with it. But, you know, that uh he was not happy with himself over that one. Well, first of all, we do need to point out he said it multiple times. <laughs> well, I said it took him a while for, for yeah. Steve to get him the word. So, uh, but yeah, it, but hey, he had some fun with it and it got a lot of publicity. Yeah, it hit the hit the national press. I have a, I had a lot of non Bruce friends uh, emailing me and texting me about it. So that was that was kind of cool. Yeah, and uh, from what we understand. After that, there is now a tape <laughs> with the city written on it before they get to the stage. Uh, yes, there is. Yeah, we saw that in what the Wrecking Ball tour. Yeah, yeah. So <laughs> probably a good idea. I mean, look, the guy's moving around a lot. You get it. He sometimes doesn't know exactly where he is. He's waking up in hotels every day. So you know, we we'll cut him some slack there. Yes. You know, there was a, a, a Southwest Airlines commercial about that. About not, Bruce? I mean, not about Bruce Bruce's oh. time doing it, but another. They had another uh, musical group on a stage and saying, "Good, you know, good evening, Columbus." And, that, and the guy, Nick, the guy next to him was like, "Dude, that was last night." So, yeah, it's not unheard of, but it's still embarrassing. And then after that, they moved on to Baltimore, which you were also at. Yes, I was. Yes, I was. This was the final performance of Board to Run, which of course means it was the final performance of Jungle Land with Clarence Clemens. Yes, and that was actually that was a good show too. We, I was, I was able to attend that one, and I had a lot of fun. Um, I mean, my love would not let you down, or Radio Nowhere into my love into Long Walk Home into the Rising. That was a hell of a sequence there. Yes, it, it is. And I and I just you know that was. Some people say that show was better than Buffalo, and you know I'm kind of I'm kind of torn, but I, I you know they have a valid argument. And then we, well, I did not arrive in Buffalo because I did not go to that show, but you arrived in Buffalo for the final night in 2009. It would ultimately wind up standing as the last official show that Clarence Clemens ever played with the E Street Band. It was also, of course, the only performance ever of Greetings from Asbury Park in its entirety. 
what did you think of the show? Uh, listening to it on tape, it, it it it's not as tight as as say either of the garden shows were, especially with the and, and of course it was the last show before Christmas with the with the Christmas tunes in there, the hang up by rock and roll shoes. But it, it it's a very fun show to listen to. Yes, it's it's very very. Fun. It was a fun night. Um, I'm I'm very glad I went. I wasn't able to go to the two garden shows, so this was kind of my uh, my my payback, and. I had I had a great time. the The performance of the album was 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 tremendous. It was good, and and certainly the I mean that growing up the story he tells him growing up is just is just legendary. Where they were talking about Bruce was talking about they they fell asleep and they when they woke up they were in fucking Buffalo, New York, and the you know the, the crowd went the crowd went nuts as you can as you can imagine and as you can hear on the archive release and. What you can't hear, of course, is the they recreated the Born to Run album cover pose, and that was that was a very special moment, one of the moments that uh, that I, I'll never forget. Yeah, that sounds like a very sweet moment, and yeah. and the Angel surprisingly, I don't think that that's a song people be like, oh, dying to see that, other than for curiosity, but it really sounds nice on the archive release. Yes, it does. Yes, it does. And so does so does even Mary Queen, in my opinion. I think the, he was he found really good arrangements for both of those that that, that worked well, and if you're talking about some more specific songs, I thought that "Lost in the Flood" was the best performance of it since seven one two thousand. I can see that. I, it was that was tremendous. The guitar solo was was just off the charts. In my what opinion. did you what did you think of the Restless Nights? Now, of course, that was a song that crushed me that I missed. I don't think they pulled it off as well as one would have hoped, but it still sounds really good. Well, yeah, as uh, in the moment, I thought it was absolutely tremendous. I mean, they had sound checked it, and so it wasn't a spur of the moment. Let's try to remember what the hell we recorded, you know, 30, 30 years ago. And they, they sound checked it. I thought it sounded really good, and I was really into it. And obviously, you know, it's one of the songs I, I never thought I would hear live. But I mean, I mean, if he wasn't going to do it on the, the reunion tour right after releasing tracks, I didn't think he was ever going to do it. And then, then he did it, and I was, I was, all, I was off the charts happy, and just it, it made the whole trip worthwhile. He did say afterwards, maybe we should have done that one more, right? <laughs> of course, that hasn't led to it being played again, including most mysteriously on the River Tour 2016 that Restless Nights was never played still don't understand that yeah, yeah well was, it was Bruce's line was god damn it he might have been right all these years so uh, yes yeah Bruce Steve was right and he, he wasn't right enough for it to come back though <laughs> I guess not and yeah and then it was kind of the show did lose a little bit of focus but at that point after the narrative or after the flow of the album. And then he got to the he got green onions to collect the signs and then the two Christmas songs and then the two covers. I mean, he did what five cover songs in a row. That's that's, that takes some guts. That takes some guts. And then, then I thought the return of long walk home to the shows in, in the fall really added a lot, especially right in, especially right into the rising instead of out of it, or I guess it was out of, out of last to die on the, on the magic tour. But I thought, the combination worked really well here. Yeah, I can see that. And, and of course, the show, he did I'll Work for Your Love in the Encores, which was specifically for the fans. And the show ended with rocking all over the world, most appropriately. <laughs> and from there, they got on a plane and they, and they went home. And as I said, unfortunately, as we know, 
Clarence did not survive to play another show, another official show. He did do the uh, carousel performance a year later, but he did not ever do another official tour show with the E Street Band again. And it's an understatement to say that we miss him. Uh, yes, it is. Yes, it is. And so despite the, the rocky start of, of the tour in the spring in the States, you know, they and even though I I, I was kind of I scoffed. I'll be honest. I scoffed <laughs> at the concept of full album shows because I thought it was kind of a kind of a crutch in some fashion to to lean on an already an already set sequence of songs to 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 get through the end of of the tour. He, I, I thought he had run out of ideas, basically. Yeah, that is what it seemed, and and fortunately, it did work really well. Very memorable shows and. You know, it's a little bit unusual for us. I mean, normally we talk about these tours. We're like, this was great. That was great. Great here. This one, not, you know, we, it's a a little bit more, well, you know, it's not all great, but they're not all going to be great. And, and, and he did really, really come through big time in that final month, month and a half or so. And with that, the, the working on a dream tour ended and we wouldn't see Bruce officially back on stage until the Wrecking Ball tour started in 2012 yeah nearly two and a half years later and and that and that was a good break i mean they had been on on the road for all like what 25 almost 25 months consecutive not 25 months consecutively consecutively but the magic tour started in october of 2007 working on a dream ended at the end of november 2009 so they needed a break and i think the fans needed a break too yes so and with that that brings our episode on the Working on a Dream Tour to a close. Should I wrap it up? Go ahead. None But the Brave is a presentation of Bull Market Entertainment. Please subscribe to the podcast on your platform of choice. Of course, we're on Apple, Google, Amazon Music, all the ones you know about. And if you want to interact with us, we're on Twitter at NBTB Podcast, and our website is nonebutthebravepodcast.com. Yes, our Twitter account has not been suspended, thankfully. Yeah. Uh, not that there's any reason to, but go on. <laughs> yeah, so for Hal Schwartz, I'm Flo McLean saying thanks again for listening, and we'll see you further on up the road. Thank you so much. We'll be seeing you. Are you tired of seeing your teen or young adult struggle on a path that clearly isn't the right fit? Is your teenager confused about which direction to take after high school? The future of work is changing rapidly and our kids need to know all of the options available after high school so they're empowered to make the choice that is best for them. In each episode, we explore the latest trends that are shaping the opportunities of today and tomorrow. I'm your host, Betsy Jewell, and this is the High School Hamster Wheel Podcast.